1: I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA Pacifica Radio. Jim Harrison, who died on March 26, 2016, at the age of 78, was one of those figures people call larger than life. A novelist, essayist, poet, screenplay writer, and master of the novella, Harrison dealt in his work with issues such as mortality... Illness, Living the Solitary Life, Redemption, and Absolution, work that, as the New York Times obituary said, captured the resonant, almost mythical soul of twentieth century rural America. I had a chance to speak with Jim Harrison while he was on tour in 2007 for his novel, Returning to Earth, which revisits characters from its 2005 novel, True North. The conversation moved in all sorts of different directions. A shorter version of this interview aired on the Bookwaves program. My guest is Jim Harrison, whose latest novel is Returning to Earth. Jim Harrison is the author of several books. I think 9 novels at this point. Yes. Collections of short stories, poems, essays, a memoir and several screenplays. Two of his works have become films and so far as I know there may be others. Wolf and uh, Legends of the Fall.
0: Yeah, also Revenge years ago with that movie, Made in Mexico with Kevin Costner and Madeline Stowe. Anthony <laughs> Quinn is a ghost? Yeah, Anthony Quinn. <laughs> <laughs> An argument over a woman. It's sort of a biological movie. Returning to Earth
1: was, uh, in a sense, a sequel to another book, True North. True. It struck me in reading Returning to Earth that not having read the earlier book, changed the emphasis of the story, because had I read the book, I would have been looking at the character of David Burkett as the main character.
0: I knew I was going to need a second volume, but I did that with Dalva and The Road Home, too. But I purposely made this to be read utterly independently also but maybe it'd have more amplification if you read True North first, but it's not necessary, certainly. Jim Harrison,
1: you just said that you were planning to write uh, a second book. It felt it
0: needed it. Why? I could just see that I wanted to get fully out of David's mind and into partly returning to earth, doesn't even directly refer to death. It's this idea I wanted to get down actually where these people lived on a day to day basis. Their their ordinariness, whereas True North was an obsessive book about a young man that feels deeply the destruction of his family's wreaked on the upper peninsula, you know, in terms of mining and timbering and so on. In fact he cut it all, everything. What I notice in
1: this book, though, is that the beginning of the book focuses on a character named Donald, who's the husband of the sister of this character, David Burkett. But as the book progresses, it moves more and more in the direction of the material that does appear in
0: True North. It's one thing, David's obsession in True North about the uh, damage caused by his family, his ancestors, it's one thing to say this damage was terrifying, but then it's another thing to say this is how people made their living. We're actual human beings, you know? We're not abstractions, which David tended always to think of in abstractions. That's why he was liberated from the horrors of his family by doing that very simple thing of distributing uh, survival cuts to Mexicans wanting to go north. You know, he finally did something that you could put your hands on. Where,
1: where, Where did you get the idea of having him do that?
0: Well, I've lived on the border in the winter in Patagonia, Arizona for 16 years, and I actually had a bit of a crack up four years ago because I wrote a piece of journalism. They found this 19-year-old girl over on the Papago Reservation, Tohono O'odham, they call themselves, and she had died of thirst, this 19-year-old girl. Very, very lovely girl. But her baby survived somehow except the baby had enormous bubbles like bubble gum, from the sun all over it. And, of course, he's laying in the arms of his dead mother. So I retraced her steps to where she came from, Veracruz, to see why did she go El Norte? You know, why did she move north? The resolution was just very unpleasant to me. And then I realized... Here I am writing about my 19-year-old dead sister again who died 40 years ago, and I wrote about her in Legends of Fault. Here she's re-emerging without me knowing it consciously. I'm writing about another 19-year-old dead girl, you know. (laughs) So anyway, I see down our creek bed in Patagonia years ago this couple, a group of people come, and one couple's holding hands, they come up to me and said, where is Chicago? It's just punishing. They're from Chiapas, of course. They're escaping Chiapas so they won't bloody die, you know. So anyway, it was that. This David's perception of the suffering of these people, you know, if a couple thousand die of thirst every year, this is really sort of overwhelming. And the detective on the Papago Reservation showed me in this arroyo that where people have died, the soil becomes more fertile, you know, wow. from the disintegration of their bodies, fertilizes the soil. So she could, she was a very prescient person, this female detective, she could see the outlines. I couldn't really see the outlines in the vegetation. This is America now, too, you know.
1: The prescience of writing about this, and then in the past year, probably since you began the novel, suddenly we've got all of this blather about illegal immigration and fences.
0: Oh, it's complete nonsense. South of me, (laughs) it's comic. Luckily, Pelosi is putting a stop to the big fence. You know, the Democrats are putting a stop to the wall. But they have these rails now. They're like railroad rails, a fence. You know, you don't really see it. It doesn't scar this incredibly beautiful landscape south of me in the San Rafael Valley. But that's to stop drug traffic. That won't stop migration. It's stop uh, cars coming over to the back country or trucks. But it's not going to work. I heard they've already got some of those rails on hinges two weeks (laughs) later. I mean, it's an indefensible border, see. All the 16 years I've been down there, I only know two politicians that even came to see. You can't extrapolate the border, you know, in Washington on the other side of the Beltway. You know, you can't comprehend the border without going to look at it. I
1: was in Tijuana toward the end of December for one day, and I watched. Mm. I saw the fence there. I mean, come on.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, when I used to quail hunt down there, my dog would go on point in Mexico, and I'd step over the fence, which is a shabby little thing. <laughs> but you no know, one understands this border is nearly two thousand miles long, and and some of it comes through the roughest country in North America. You know, down toward Obispe, south of New Mexico, this is the same country where Geronimo evaded General Crook for three years. You can't find a cow there. You know, you can't find 200 Indians there. How are you going to stop somebody from crossing over? Though, indeed, they have to be in good physical condition to make it.
1: You were born in
0: Upper Michigan? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah.
1: and uh, most of your novels, many of your novels, I guess, take place in that area, which very few people write about.
0: Well, there aren't many. (laughs) This is not a storied place in that sense. The Upper Peninsula, particularly, that I have my series about a mixed-blood scoundrel named Brown Dog lives there. Robert Travers wrote up there The Anatomy of a Murder, but it's not known. Hemingway, oddly enough, wrote his big two-hearted river story up there after World War I. He was a tourist from Chicago, see? The, the
1: sense I get in reading Returning to Earth is that because it's fairly sparsely populated and lots of forests and lots of um, Native American
0: culture, it, it takes on an almost mystical... Uh, well, not to them it doesn't, because there's no one. Native Americans, you can't talk about them generically. Say, Anishinaabe, the Chippewas, are preposterously non-mystical people. It plays um, a role in your book and in, in the dreaming well, of the yeah. yeah, yeah, in the history of the culture is almost the history of the land. The land is destroyed, the culture is destroyed. You know, there are 532 language groups, many have disappeared. The damage is unilaterally, it runs concurrent with the destruction of land was the destruction of the people. And know. that that's the mining? Mining, forests, logging.
1: What's it like up there now?
0: It's quite lovely in a sort of beat-up way. Uh, I had a cabin there 25 years, and I would say a 99% of my hikes, or more, in 26 years, I never saw another human being, none. <laughs> That's nice. Isn't it? But the stumps, the ghost stumps, I begin to think that the go- they're almost like the ghosts of buffalo. These enormous white pine stumps, you know, everywhere from when they were cut 100 years ago, all of them. The book
1: takes place in 1995. Why did you choose to set it? Well, I ago? wanted
0: to continue I wanted to continue where True North left off, sort of. Uh, that idea, and also I needed that distance. I wrote something in my journal the other day, I didn't quite understand it at first. We must uh, remove ourselves from uh, the sentimentality of the contemporaneous. You know, it's hard to have any lucid perception, say, of where you are now as you move along, so I needed that 10 years to look backward, it almost seems that
1: when Bush came in in two thousand and one, and then we had nine eleven, that a lot of perception changed, not at all in a positive way.
0: And it almost feels as if the nineties become idyllic. I hadn't thought of it quite that way, but that is more of an urban perception. I noticed that strikingly in New York. You know, the first time you flew to New York landing at LaGuardia after 9-11. You said, where are those <laughs> buildings? Where are those buildings? And you have sort of a itchy feeling in your sternum. And I notice a certain change in the people, though. They've now largely recovered in there. I think of New York as a, like a turtle is covered with a carapace of greed, of unbelievable <laughs> proportions. You know? yeah. I said to a New York lawyer, he thought it was amusing, that I wanted to start a class action suit against Yale for graduating both Bush and Kerry. They've really done incredible damage to our country, these networks, you know. And I thought he was amused by the idea. He was a Yale graduate, so I was teasing him. So there's a line that your character, Cynthia, says uh, in teaching,
1: she decides to leave teaching because she said, it seems that the only purpose is to
0: create employees. Yeah, well, to a certain extent, that's what they're asked to do, is to create fodder for the economy.
1: David Brooks of the New York Times, uh, I think he calls them, human resources, and it was this cold, horrible thing that could only come from some
0: armchair mm. jerk sitting on the East Coast. You that know. would be Brooks. That would yeah. be Brooks perfectly. You know, I just I, I find it unbelievable that they print this guy. You know, because uh, that's true. But then I had this idea I was discussing with a Mexican the other day, it was a Vietnam veteran, that I didn't think by and large, let's say, Cheney, Rove, Bush, have any perception of the people that were dying there. They never, they don't know such people. They don't know lower class people in general. That's who does. As the guy said to me in the U.P., also makes but My son Marvin's going off to Iraq to make a living getting shot at. That's their sense of humor. He's going to make a living getting shot at. Well, anyway, people like Brooks or in the Inside the Beltway, our society is so striated now and so layered. They don't know any of these people there certainly can be no photos made of their caskets because that would be upsetting. You're listening to an interview with Jim Harrison, whose latest novel is Returning to Earth.
1: The book is also about death and about how one deals with death and Mm -hmm. dying.
0: What prompted you to write that, to come out of Well, because uh, there's been a great deal of death in our family, as there is in every family. You know, my father and sister were killed in an auto accident when he was 53 and she was 19. And my brother died a couple years ago. And also, in my little nickel-plated Zen training early on, called Shino Sensei, he was from here originally, is that there's that old Zen dictum that you should relive your death every morning and then it won't come as any surprise. It only takes a split second to imagine yourself dead, you know, so it's very refreshing. And I thought, this is a culture that is largely ignored, tries to ignore death, therefore it doesn't know how to grieve, it doesn't know how to deal with death. A friend, a dear friend of mine in France, lost another man, his significant other, as they call him, for 35 years. But what they do there, one year of grieving, at the end of that year, he gets in the truffles, the caviar, a big wild salmon. Okay, this is over, you know, I've accepted. There's that ghost supper thing that the Chippewas do that I've attended, where you throw tobacco on the fire to release the ghosts of your beloved ones because they don't want to stay here. You're holding their spirits here. You have to let them go, but that's for you. You have to let them go. As Lauren Isley said so powerfully, we loved the earth, but we couldn't stay.
1: The uh, characters there wonder if the character of Donald is in a bear, and Cynthia makes a comment, "Was I like dogs, does that mean I have to deal
0: with <laughs> yeah, having right. a dog? Let's say they're very practical, <laughs> these people. Uh, that's what, I, again, the title, Returning to Earth, because, uh, you know, I don't want like to talk about somebody else's religion, but bear medicine is very, very heavy medicine it chooses you, you don't choose it, and uh, it's the daughter and the particular Claire that wishes to think perhaps her father has become a bear, which is not unheard of at all, you know. There's Rockwell's book, Giving Voice to the Bear, is interesting, the position of the bear in native cultures, all native cultures is very prominent, you know. Because, you know, if you clean a bear, I helped a friend shot a bear, and I was helping clean it. They're really shaped extraordinarily like us. Arms, legs, chest, organs are in the same place. It's a little disturbing. But you see a bear, I used to have one that visited me a couple times a week at my cabin, and he was a very old male, and it started losing a lot of his fur, splotchy. And uh, his skin was loose, and he would look at me, and I would nod, right? He was asking permission to go to the bird feeder for a big mouthful of sunflower seeds. And so he would walk over, stand up, he's really quite large, take a big mouthful, look at me again, and walk off.
1: When writing about Native American lore, you know, Mm. or particular tribal lore, do you ever have the, f- the fear of either being over
0: idealizing or patronizing
1: at all? I mean, no, not
0: too much. See, the trouble is I don't write ever in terms of pure bloods. That's them. But what we have in the UP, it's extraordinary, and you have it other places, the United States. When the loggers, the miners, and so on went up there first, there weren't enough women to go around, and many men married Indian women, so there's a huge population of mixed bloods there and many other places in America. You ever read the work of Gerald Visner, who's an extraordinary, extraordinary writer. In fact, I think he taught at Berkeley for years. visner an extraordinary writer about this mixed blood culture. What's it like to have a foot in both worlds? I lived for thirty five years, oh gosh, what six miles from the res, and I was even asked to write their tribal history and I ended up only writing the introduction to the tribal history, so I don't think it's. I can be patronizing patron. <laughs> I because I look a little strange. I even got kicked out of a strip club once because they said, We don't serve Indians in there. And I says, I'm an Indian? I don't think so. And they said, Get out of here. You look like one. You know, that guy. No strip clubs for you. <laughs> uh,
1: you also have said, uh Nothing in the world causes more problems than concepts of ethnic
0: virtue. Well, I think that's true, and I think I've uh, written about people I know, and I can't accept any limitations of an artist as an artist. I can't accept any limitations, but uh, I mean, I'm friends with Sherman Alexie, and. Louise Airdrich, they've never objected to my existence. It's just the mixed (laughs) blood is a whole different thing. This isn't, I don't enter into things, certain things I do know about and I think are totally inappropriate for me. But everything in this book, in fact, shaman I know, uh, I knew 25 years before I knew he was the local shaman. That's how secretive chips can be, right? Chips, they call themselves sometimes. He wrote an essay about his uh, vision quest in Parabola magazine. So this is accessible information. There are some areas of it I, I don't think we should enter.
1: You have a character named Flower. Is she? I, I couldn't tell if she was full blood or? Yeah, she's pretty much full blood. Flower makes the comment, of it, and I'm, I'm just curious of where this came from. A wet man is like a frog who thinks he is the whole world, that the world starts and ends with him. I notice that most men are like that now. (laughs)
0: Yeah, right, right. (laughs) Nothing is ever tougher than some of these Indian ladies. I mean, God, you feel nervous. I mean, talk about feeling seen through, you know? Did that come from someone you knew? Yeah, basically, yeah. Jim Harrison, it must
1: be quite a jump to go from living in that culture to living in the Hollywood world of Jack Nicholson and Harrison Ford?
0: Well, it was. And see, one thing I suppose that why I quit in Hollywood 12 years ago is the essential schizophrenia of uh, I could leave L.A. 24 hours later, I'm at this remote cab, (laughs) you know. (laughs) And so I used to think, here's an illusion people have that this cabin and these people help me prepare for the world, but they don't. They help you prepare for more of the cabin. In fact, they disprepare you. There's no such word. They disprepare you from the world. So the schizophrenia got too extreme. Some writers, though, can avoid it. I mean, you didn't actually live in L.A. No, but I, what I thought, I looked to my journals once, and I had... 52 trips. (laughs) American Airlines, Chicago to LA, you know. I was temperamentally unable to teach. I tried it for two years, and it just didn't work. I found it incredibly exhausting work, teaching the parasitic relations with students, you know. If you're any good or enthusiastic, you suddenly have a coterie around you that are draining your blood that you want to save for your writing, you know? So to that degree, being in Hollywood was less Oh, vampires? much so. Like, I started out the lowest rung, but at my top, when I quit, I could write a screenplay in two months for a price of five or six times what a full professor gets. So <laughs> it's a no-brainer. You knew John Houston. Yeah, yeah. What was he like? Grandeur. Human and spiritual, physical grandeur. <laughs> no, he's a great man. Yeah, I, I adore John. His daughter, too, Angelica, is just a big human, big heart, big mind. Those kind of people. How did they manage to survive in the Hollywood mill? They were too strong to die. Uh, but, you know, John wanted to direct my revenge on Mourners, so John Huston will never work for Mourners. You know, he pissed off a lot of people out
1: there. <laughs> were the only screenplays that actually came out Wolf and uh, Legends of well, the World? Well, you
0: know, I, I had my hand in a lot of stuff. I think five or six of them, but I don't even think about them anymore you know I'm not ashamed of it was a good job and then I got really tired and had to quit I keep thinking um, as I was looking at your biography
1: I was thinking of the other writers that I know have gone to Hollywood written what sounds like great screenplays and walked away with nothing produced there must be you know or these screenplays were completely perverted by the next hundred people who looked at them and their producers well that
0: happens all the time I think Bill Whitliffe's screenplay for legends is much better than the one that got made. He got co-credit, but Whitliffe uh, you know, wrote Lonesome Dove or uh, I mean, there's nothing better that's been on television about the West. Whitliffe is a genius of the West, but uh, oh, yeah, pure purity gets adumbrated out there pretty fast <laughs> or a mistrust in story. I
1: keep thinking also of, you know, the the most pure movie ever made from a book may still
0: be Houston's Maltese Falcon. Yeah, truly, truly. You know, uh, another good one, Hal Ashby's Being There, I think, was better than Kaczynski's novel. I mean, it was a splendid film. But the trouble is that I don't say fault Hollywood more then I do New York Publishers, you know, which have become a virtual Walmart of books. So I don't see any big ethical moral difference between the two. Oh. It's preposterous, you know. I get a th- couple hundred galleys over the transom every year, and I said, you know, you wonder, why are there 300 creative writing colleges or programs, you know, that kind of stuff. They teach how to write sentences. They don't teach how to tell a story. Well, they they don't teach you how to have a story to tell. That's true, too. You know? you
1: know, I notice you're very popular in France, and your comment about it is that you write dialogue amongst intelligent people, and it occurred to me that that's one of the reasons I enjoy watching films by people like Claude Chabrol or oh, Eric Romer.
0: Yeah. Dude, that's not dumb. Well, you know, a French critic said a peculiar thing to me because I couldn't account You know, I've had, what, three or four bestsellers in France and certainly none here. But he said it was because of my novels. There are thinking people who also do things. Okay, in American novels, it's either just thinking people who don't do anything or people that do things, you know, <laughs> and don't think, you know, say, action.
1: What's the difference between plotting a novel and plotting a screenplay, for you at least?
0: Oh gosh, not much. I think all action seems to evolve from a character, and that was the trouble I had as a screenwriter, where they would also want somebody to be in all their fads from year to year. I remember toward the end they wanted me to write about people who become. a Empowered, that was the word that year, and I said, I mean, give me a break, you know. I mean, I don't know what's an empowered person, how do you suddenly become empowered? That seemed to be basically fatuous, you know. Yeah. Have you ever had a situation where you worked on
1: a screenplay, it was rejected, and you said, Wow, this. Could be a novel, I could work on it into a novel?
0: Not usually, because like novels, any novel or novella I've written, I usually thought about for years and years and years. I've taken ideas that I thought could be a novel and then written screenplays about them just because I thought that was a better form. But oddly enough, after I quit writing screenplays, and they paid a fortune to teach me how, I've become quite obsessive about movies now. You know Netflix? You right. know, I get dozens of Netflix, and I've, I've gone through now Spanish and Mexican and French cinema, a lot of them that I knew, but now I find that uh, I'm really interested in a minutia of how they're put together. So I think I might try to write one more. I had an idea. Finally an idea, and now I can, if I write the screenplay for Nicholson, I won't have a studio or a producer sticking pins in me or anything. I'm just going to write it for my own interest, and either will work or not. And then Nicholson can do what he wants. Well, if he wishes, he and Sean Penn is who I'm writing it for, because I like Sean's work. I mean, I'm just writing it on my own. They know I'm doing it, and Jack does, but... It's just something that interested me.
1: What happened to the screenplay? You wrote a screenplay set in the 1920s west for Harrison Ford at one yeah, point? Yeah,
0: well, that's a sad one. I did five versions of that. And it's such an incredible historical juncture, sort of when the west ends, the 1920s and the Sandhills of Nebraska where you have profound elements of the history of the West. It was the last it's the literal site of the end of the Indian Wars, you know, just south of Wounded and so on. But I don't know, Harrison's a movie star, he was thinking about it for a while, but I don't know. Certain people, they keep a lock on a lot of work and it's theirs, say. And they don't though they're not gonna do it Redford's famous for that. He doesn't want anybody else to do it either. So it winds up just sitting, Yeah, adding. it's a dog in a manger. I think Redford used to buy a lot of McGuane's books. Nothing ever came of it, which is a mixed blessing, you know. <laughs> you're very much a part
1: of the writing community, I guess. You know who's uh, Erdrich, and you're good friends with
0: McGuane, right? Yeah, for 40 years, so oh. more. Well, I don't go to New York often enough to be a literati, but naturally, you know, a lot of other novelists like Jim Welch had just died last year. When you're working, what prompts you to write a short story?
1: I mean, a novel gestates for years, a short story may not, or a poem
0: or an essay you know that's an interesting question because I have never figured it out. I don't really I only really written technically one short story, but I've written a 12 novellas which are just like long short stories. I don't know. I've written about 25 poems in the last year. But any time I sit down early in the morning as Wang Wei said in the Tang dynasty who knows what causes the opening or closing of the door? I don't know what's going to come that day. You know, usually if I'm working on a novel, I do a couple pages a day and then brood about what comes next. But a poem is most liable, as Yeats said, come out of the medium's mouth. It just is more liable to just hit you with a certain line.
1: But on some level, I think, all fiction and poetry comes out of that. I mean, you know, it's like I I remember once talking to Amy Tan, and she made a peculiar comment about uh, going over certain things. I said to her, and later on, I didn't realize it actually said something. So in other words, you're telling me you're writing the same book
0: over and over again. She said yes. Well, some people do. I can't. I think... Sometimes it's caused me problems of accessibility because I do vary widely in my work.
1: But I I also look at a book like Returning to Earth and I see certain things. There's a young woman who died at 25 in the book, Mm -hmm. absent fathers. Your father died when you were young, but the characters of Cynthia,
0: Donald, Kay,
1: David, all the major characters had to find surrogate fathers.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. See, that's unconscious in me, you know. That's unconscious. It's interesting how that Willy uh or Brown Dog being perpetually, randomly fatherless, you know, that kind of thing. That's one reason why it's interesting, you know. <laughs> but that is an acute observation because I see nothing in a novel can emerge except from what we are, you know, <laughs> Right, what right. we are on earth.
1: To some know. degree, then, it all becomes, in a, in a weird way, whether you're writing about the Roman Empire or you're writing about the future, you're always writing autobiography on well, some
0: level. Well, on a certain level, yes. Yeah, specifically, though, some people tend to tell, for a while, McGuane and all of his novels, there was this perpetually revolving father-son conflict.
1: When you look at people who you think most resemble your own writing, can you, who are you looking at? Harry Cruz? I mean, I I, I kind of see McGuane, Barry Lopez.
0: A little bit, yeah. I was like, I don't know who's similar because uh, my own models uh, are often even foreign. I mean, I said it irked a bunch of people. I said the modern novel, American novel, is only a uh, Island in the Sea of Marquez. Listening to your erudition, do you have time to reread books then? Oh sure, I sure. I keep going back to Shakespeare and Turgenev and Dostoevsky. But see, I live remotely, so I have a lot of time to read. I don't have spent much time socializing with other writers or anything. so. Other than, I would say, last summer I fished for 70 days. uh, (laughs) I have a lot of time to read. That wouldn't happen if I lived here. There must be 100 restaurants I should check out or, you know, 200 bars or something like
1: that. Well, you're right about food. Food writing is something that um, there are some people who do
0: it extremely well. MFK Fisher, of course, Calvin Trillin. But I like to, uh, I write about food for Michael Ondaatje's Canadian magazine, Brack. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I have an enormous admiration for his uh, work, you know. Ondaatje's novels, to me, are preposterously strong. That anneals those.
1: Jim Harrison, having written Returning to Earth, do you feel you've told David Burkett's story sufficiently now?
0: Yeah, yeah, surely. That's enough. Some people were irked when Dalva died. I said, Well, maybe I did it so I, might, I could get rid of her. <laughs> you know, like Do kind
1: of you ever have characters pop up from other novels like
0: that? No, occasionally I've done that, but this is enough of this story, I think, you know, because I say that and I might think next year, What is Cynthia doing? you know, because she interests me, this carry, this inordinately strong woman. I read the psychiatric literature on this. This is interesting. Under profoundly ugly circumstances, some women are still just inordinately strong, and they can't figure out why. You know, there's no reason. Everything mitigates against them being strong, but they... They just are. There's a the whole terminology for this state.
1: You had a reputation for a while of writing great male characters, but the characters, the female characters in Returning to Earth are spectacular.
0: Yeah, I think I, when I wrote Dolva in 88 or something, or or also there was that novella that was in the New Yorker, The Woman Led by Fireflies. I think I, at, around that time in the 80s, I became obsessed with trying to write in the voice of a woman. You know, that's what we all, we're all girls when we're, we start out. I didn't, somebody, hit scientist told me that last year. <laughs> <You know. laughs>
1: how, how do you feel in writing a book with multiple voices and ensuring that the voices all do sound different?
0: Well, you hope they will because that's one thing they miss. In so many novels, or in movies in particular, everybody sounds the same, where in fact, everyone talks quite differently, and they all are coming off from a different body of experience, so they shouldn't sound the same at all. I mean, even brothers and sisters, David and Cynthia sound radically, radically different, because this is how it would be. It's a hard thing sometimes. You know, Goethe said that such a price that God's exact for, for song to become what we write. Okay, so the trouble is it's sort of hard on you to be all these people. <laughs> I mean, after you get done, it's like an actor. I remember once with Nicholson, how do you get out of one who flew over the cuckoo's nest? How do you emerge from that character? Or my wife has noticed when I write, like, about Dalwell's grandfather in a 200-page second. I'm walking around, stooped over. I mean, you know, you you become, you're like a method actor. You become that person, you know. What, what did Nicholson answer when you asked him that? Well, no, of course you don't emerge from the, oh, totally. It takes a while to get out of, you almost have to get into another character to get out of the other one. It's what Walker Percy called the reentry problem, you know. Did you ever get a
1: chance to meet Marlon Brando?
0: Yeah, any number of times. Yeah, he was Jack's neighbor, you know.
1: What was he like?
0: Powerful, brooding, very, very funny, very funny. You know, once we were leaving Jack's and Marlon's, walking along this uh, driveway, and Jack's teasing me, he said, "Marlon, you're getting a little old," and uh, Marlon. Leans over and looks in our rearview mirror and starts going like that, you know. And he does and talks about 10 minutes about getting older. And Jack says, Jesus, I'm really sorry I said that. You know, it (laughs) completely blew us away, you know. Now, immensely powerful personality. Very divided, you know, resigned. I think, finally, that he couldn't make up his own material. That's hard for a lot of them.
1: Yeah, but... um, They have
0: to have a schmuck. You know, (laughs) what did did one producer call them? Screenwriters are schmucks that drive Corollas. (laughs) They had to depend on us to make up the stories, you know? Yeah, but Brando generally rewrote all of his dialogue anyway. Up to a point, yeah, up to a point. Not necessarily in his best work, though. A great actor... Oh God! You can think of a half dozen. Naturally, you have to, They have to be allowed to change dialogue for their own voice. I mean, and sometimes if it's like some, like Sean Penn or Jack or, or De Niro, a substantial actor or actress, you know, or have an uncanny sense of dialogue. So it has. They have to be able to change it. If it, what they perceive of the, as the character, you know.
1: Well, as listening to you talking, I'm, I'm what I'm seeing are the, the close connection between mm-hmm. the writer, uh, and the actor in terms of creating that ambience and that voice.
0: Well, that is true. I mean, once they start with the story, I remember in that Beatty film where uh, Jack took a bit part as Eugene O'Neill. Okay. Well I saw him start six months before preparing for that part by obsessively reading O'Neill, reading O'Neill biographies. You know, this is this is an actor, not a movie star. I mean there's quite a difference, you right. know. You know, when you
1: see But then you wonder how he prepared for something like the departed, you know.
0: Yeah, okay. Well, he's known some shady people. You know this actress now, Kate Blanchett, you ever see her? Oh, sure. She has this unbelievable ability to enter a character, you know, where sometimes it needs a good director. Like, you can forget Penelope Cruz is really a good actress because you see three bad movies, then I saw this Italian movie, Don't Move, the other day. Roberto Castelletti directed it, where she is a girl who cleans motel rooms. And by God, within a minute, you believe she's a girl that cleans motel rooms. Her teeth aren't right. She looks like a wave. She wears sort of ratty clothes, and the surgeon falls in love with her. Well, what that takes is a great director, a really good director to get them out of whatever they've done before and into into this character well in the uh, case
1: in the case of Cruz, I think it's like looking at the difference
0: between her American films and her films with Almodovar. you know oh well that that's <laughs> it I'll, but there's a, the the director to me. Right. That and that Mexican that did that, that more Paris and Babel did you see Babel just that blew yet. my mind you know it's such a powerful film, Jim Harrison, now you've finished Returning to Earth you're working on a comic novel now I just I already finished a comic novel I started it four days after that to levitate my spirits a bit but it's a novel I thought about for actually forty years ago when I taught it's Tony Brook. It's called the English major. I taught my last course lying flat, flat on my face on the floor. I couldn't take it. It was a contemporary poetics. My students understood my, that I was an extremist, you know.
1: <laughs> One final question, and this is a really broad <laughs> question, but can writing be taught?
0: Certain technical aspects, of course, but Despite all appearances, life requires content. You know, that's the problem. You can't give anybody stories to tell. That comes from the wideness of their comprehension of human life. Depends on travel, depends on extreme vulnerability. I actually designed a creative writing program once I was irked. They show up for a week. They're given a journal and a reading list of 200 books. It's the essence of Western fiction. Then they're sent off to work for a year in the country, and then a year in the city. Work, have jobs, and then come back for another month, and then it's over. Because what, what can there be to talk about? You learn how to write fiction by reading fiction, I mean, I never took any writing courses, but of course there weren't many around. So I think of it as a pyramid scheme for writing programs. A few worked, Stanford, that worked with Stager, but all he ever did is go write. I mean, Robert Stone, McGuane, Kesey, right. although he didn't like Kesey or McGuane at all for obvious reasons, you know. Too much in one place well most of the uh, the best writers
1: that I've talked to, to many of them they never took in a writing course in their yeah. lives a lot of them began as journalists because that puts you in the action and you learn how to you learn well, the way, you know
0: look think I think over and over again what Rilke said only in the rat race of the arena can the heart learn to beat
1: the screenplay Jim Harrison was working on at the time of this interview has never been produced. His next novel, The English Major, was published in 2008. His last book, a collection of three novellas titled The Ancient Minstrel, was published on March 1, 2016. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.